0: From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome
1: to the For Love of the Land podcast. We're your hosts Adam Keith and Matt Dye. Each week we're interviewing guests from across America. They all have one thing in common, they all are tied to the land. So if you're like us and you love all things land, welcome home.
2: All right, guys. Welcome to another um, podcast. I'm your host, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. We've got return guest. I don't remember what number was he. Number four? Number five of the Free Love and Land podcast? Yeah, somewhere right in there. Our West Virginia native, but Ohio farmer. That's it. Mr. Todd Watts. Thanks for coming back. Yeehaw. Yep. We've got Todd here. We're here in, uh, we're at your place here in Ohio. The Hogan. The Hogan. And we are finally coming out of, I won't say coming out of winter, but um, enjoying some sunshine. We're actually recording on the back deck, looking over Lake Mickey and the Hogan Farm and enjoying the first warm day we've had in
3: weeks, it seems like. Matt and I (laughs) have been
2: on the road this is day seven, day seven or eight, I guess. Right. Because we, we've done two, we left last Sunday. Now it's Sunday again. Um, and we'll be on the road again tomorrow, but back home tomorrow night. We've been consulting in oh, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia,
1: and we'll hit Indiana. And tomorrow. we're going to hit
2: Indiana tomorrow. Yes, sir. And so we've worked five, we'll work five properties on this trip and, uh, it's been a fun fun trip but it's been mighty mighty cold
1: you know what what is always fun is spending time with clients outside of the property too to truthfully understand and get to know them build those relationships and and the other night we had a dinner with you know since we have West Virginia close Ohio close and several people coming together you know within 30 miles plus or minus each direction um, we and got the, everyone together and they all kind of no somehow connected yes yeah yeah. and so we had a we had a big dinner and um just got everyone together like-minded people talking property talking management talking goals and what they want to do and see on their property and that was fun todd what'd you think was good steak was real good yeah
2: i was sitting here thinking man this is the quietest I've heard Todd this whole trip. All we had to do was put a headset on him. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get in that Polaris next time we're here, and I'm gonna say, here, put this headset on. Mm-hmm.
0: That doesn't slow my driving. No, it doesn't. No, <laughs> old Jeff Gordon style.
1: <clears throat> what do you think of the dinner, Todd? I know you talked. Man, I, I think I'd like to do that more often.
0: That was great. It was, it was really fun. It yeah. was. Not only was the steak good, and my dog loved it. <laughs> he, ate the, he ate the last one. The whole uh, thing. He's smart. He's yeah. Stole it, was, it. It was, number one, it was good to revisit because one of the one of the landowners, Ryan, used to be my neighbor
3: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm.
0: in Charleston, West Virginia. And then John, I worked with John for probably six or seven, eight years. I trained him in the business that we're in. And, yep. so, and so I reconnected with him. He owes you everything. Yeah, that's right. He owes me everything. <laughs> but I reconnected with him when he bought his farm about three years ago or so when I bought mine. And then Ryan i haven't i haven't seen ryan in well since i moved from there which is probably six seven eight years mm-hmm. ago and so it was fun to reconnect with him so hmm. it was really nice and then and then i brought a friend friend over who took me on my first ever deer hunt mm-hmm. he came and he has a farm in in west virginia as well and so it was just great it was just great to sit around and talk some habitat some hunting some this some that it was just really cool
2: i i, I think my whole my favorite part and there's going to be podcasts c- covering this in the future but was talking about John shared some stuff about um the taxes with with mm-hmm. land ownership with with cows or without cows or with income without income um and kind of there's a lot of information out there that's not shared often on, in podcast world about uh, the benefits of having those type of operations. So that was one of my favorite parts, talking numbers with cows and, and what that would look like on the property, how to involve them. Um, overall, I, I enjoyed the heck out of it.
1: It's super easy to get caught up in looking at properties just from a recreational standpoint. But like like you said, a lot of these these people, property owners, want more out of their property. And it's it's awesome to be able to discuss that plan that and really try and get maximize acres. We we talk about it on the the P- habitat podcast all the time maximizing acres for habitat. But now we we really really have to sit back and and think how do we maximize acres for wildlife and for for a, a, let's say a, a small livestock operation. And,
0: and it wasn't really even, it wasn't even livestock. They were getting tax deductions for other things. Yeah. It, it yeah. was various hay operations. It was operation, Yep. Even it was brought up, even if you allowed someone to hunt and you charged them for it, yep. that allows you to qualify for a deduction. Yep. In my case, I lease I lease eighty acres to a farmer mm-hmm. who paid me rent. Well, deduction. Yeah, so it allows you to write off equipment or write off depreciation, all these things. And and I was a little bit surprised. I I hadn't gone down that avenue yet. And I'm going to meet with an accountant soon because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it was it was pretty big. What the value it gave back to you from a financial perspective.
2: Yeah. Well, we want to talk this whole podcast on something that Todd is very passionate about. Mm -hmm. Very much so. Um, That's never been covered in our podcast. Nope. Um, And so I mentioned as soon as we opened up, we're staring over Lake Mickey or Mickey Lake. Lake Mickey. Lake Lake Mickey. Um, And so we're going to talk pond management, pond architecture, laying out ponds, things to not do, things to do, things to look for. Todd, you've got a, I don't even know how long you've been looking at the pond and creating. I know you said you built it in your mind for 20 years or something like that. So there's, when you look at a pond, um, sometimes if you're just like from a fishing standpoint, you're like, it's water and I don't know what's underneath it. Mm -hmm. Um, And like where I'm from, there's a lot of ponds created for cattle but there's not a whole lot of thought into fish structures and diversity That's within right. a pond. Right. And so uh, this pond, how big? It's four acres, right at four acres. And mm-hmm. it kind of wraps here. we're sitting on at the lodge and we're kind of looking and I can't see the I can't see the far east side, but uh, kind of wraps around. Mm-hmm. Um, what what was it about so you bought this farm mm-hmm. how many years ago? Three, 2016. What was the first thing you did when you bought it?
0: Well, the first thing I did before I bought it was look at a topo map to make sure I could build a pond. Because in reality, when I bought this farm, I didn't have deer hunting in mind. And what was covered Mm -hmm. on another podcast. I won't go back into that. But (coughs) I bought this to build a pond. I wanted to build a pond from scratch. And you mentioned 20 years that I I watched a Ray Scott video 20 years ago called Great Small Waters. And at that time it was on VHS. Mm -hmm. And it was about how to build your own bass pond and bass lake. And I probably watched that video, I wore that VHS out, and then I ordered the DVD, wore it out. I probably watched it a hundred times. And then I probably read four or five books on bass, and, and my, my target was largemouth bass. And so for 17 years, I built a pond in my mind. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the land, I didn't have the pond, but I built it in my mind exactly what I wanted it to be. So when I first looked at this farm, and any farm I looked at, I, the first criteria was could I build a pond. And I wanted... I wanted no less than three acres and no more than about six.
1: From a construction standpoint.
0: From a construction, from a maintenance, from mm-hmm. a cost, it's just that the sweet spot to me is that four to six acres.
1: Right, yeah. right. Mm-hmm. And so this wasn't. It's not like this was the first property you looked at either. No,
0: I looked at two over two hundred.
1: Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what was? Now it – I didn't physically look at every sure. two hundred, but that's yeah. you analyze. I analyzed
0: at least probably about two hundred. critically. That's my estimate. Over five or six. So
1: <laughs> what was it about this property that you're like? You know what I. C- here, this is the one.
0: Sure. Well, I won't get into all the regulation, but uh, the the EPA basically says you can't dam up waters, and mm-hmm. I won't really get yeah. into all yeah. that. But some some EPAs and some Corps of Engineers who kind of runs the program in the country, some are more strict and some are not. Around here, they're very strict. Yeah. So you cannot dam up a stream of any kind. Right. Well, how do you build a pond without damming up a stream? <laughs> yeah, where's your water? So, so I had to basically find a farm or a property that laid... In such a way that I could basically build a levee or a dam that didn't dam up a stream but collected rainwater. Still water. collected water, yes. And so this was a fortunate property that had about a 70-acre drainage around it that supplied enough water to build right out of four-acre lake. Yep. And that's, a, that's one thing. You have to be very careful when you build a lake and you put a dam that if... You have to have the proper watershed. If you have too much watershed, your dam's gonna you're gonna have a tough time holding the water in the dam. Right. If you don't have enough, you can't keep it filled. Mm-hmm. So it's a fine line between it's a healthy how much balance. Yes, it's a healthy balance because a watershed will only support so much of a lake.
1: Right, right. Mm-hmm. So you found the place, yes, got under contract, mm-hmm. started building, yes. started planning. Yes. What was construction like? Kind of break that down from a from a step plan you know. Sure.
0: Take us through that process. Sure. Well let me go back a little bit. There's 3 to 4 million. We don't know exactly, but let's, let's just call it for the lack of saying, You know, being too detailed. There's 3 to 4 million private lakes in the United States. Yeah. The majority of them, it's estimated that over 90% of them are built like a bowl. Okay. Like they're, they're built to f- feed cattle, feed livestock, swim. Mm-hmm. Just People build lakes. They just dam up something, and they put water in it, and they have a bowl. That's great from a perspective of swimming and for livestock, but that's not a great fishery. Bass are and bluegill and really all fish species are edge creatures, just like deer and, and other wildlife. Mm-hmm. And they like to have structure and cover. So they like to have depth changes. They like to have points and ridges and holes, yep. deep water, shallow water, spawning beds, all this habitat. It's very complicated under the water to have a really great fishery. So when I went to build this lake and construct this lake, number one, and I, had to, I wanted to make sure that the bass and the bluegill, because our species are bass and bluegill, mm-hmm. that they had everything they needed to feed, congregate, loaf, spawn, and thrive. So we needed shallow water, we needed deep water, we needed spawning beds, we needed ridges, humps, and all of those features. Because different times of the year, fish need different things. For example, in the middle of the summer when it's really, really, really hot, they need to go deeper, yep. And they need to go deeper to stay cool because a bass and bass in particular doesn't function very well above about 88 degrees.
2: I hope everybody's catching the the the, the correlation. You could you could take largemouth bass and fish, cross that out and put deer. Absolutely. Cross that out and put quail. Absolutely. Cross that out and put quail yes. or, or cows.
0: That's right.
3: They're, Turkeys. It's the exact same thing. It's exactly species, the same. wildlife species.
2: They so have yeah. the
1: exact yeah. things that they need
0: think that's the way god made it that's exactly. right you know intricate and so the the optimum temperature for bass is you know give or take around 70 to 80 degrees that's the optimum once it gets starts getting much much above 85 86 87 they don't like it very well and now they can handle cooler water but it's that it's <coughs> that heat so in the summer they go deeper to stay cool but they don't go too deep because it, you lose oxygen as the lower you get yeah well, in the winter, it's the same way. They go deep to stay warm because in the winter, the coldest waters at the surface. Mm-hmm. The warmest waters is at the, at the deepest. Well, in the spring and the fall, it's the complete opposite. They, it's the water's cooler. It's perfect growing conditions. So they put on most of their growth in the spring and the fall, and that's when they're, they'll feed in the, near the surface in the spring and the fall and go deep during the middle of the day. So back to the question, when you go to build a lake, you have to think of all that. You have to think of the depths. the. But when you build a bowl, like most people do, yep. you don't have the structure. You don't have the cover. You don't have the depth changes. And so fish just end up hanging around one spot, and it just doesn't make for a good fishery.
1: So you set out mm-hmm. to not have that. Correct. What in the design mm-hmm. of this pond or lake mm-hmm. makes it so special? Sure.
0: That's more than a podcast, but I'll try my best. <laughs>
1: you got five minutes.
2: No. You're gonna do <laughs> yeah. it, you're gonna have to do a repeat visit, I guess, yeah. down That's right. the road. That's right. I have a feeling a lot of people are gonna like this podcast Very, because exactly.
1: Most yeah. people don't know all about the intricacies yeah. of a pond and how to properly build one. So this is this is extremely informational packed and I'm sure you you could do you could start uh, a whole podcast yeah, on could, building yeah. ponds. A whole series.
0: I could do a series on this. Yeah. Well the the Let's go back to not only what the fish need, but what does the angler need? And when, we went to, when I went to build this pond, I, I thought about I wanted to mimic a large impoundment in a small body of water. Now, here's mm-hmm. what I mean by large impoundment. Think of the, the best fishing lakes fishing lakes all around the country, whether it be Kentucky Lake or Lake of the Ozarks or, or um, Table Rock or just, you know, keep naming them. There are these famous fisheries that bass fishermen and fisher, you know, sports persons and all across, they're just known for great habitat and great and mm-hmm. what do they have? And and think about what does an angler look for when he's going out to catch a bass? They all talk about rocky points and flats. They talk about underwater, you know, old creek beds, old okay. road beds, changes all the, in and changes terrain. in depth. Everything. Docks, Docks that's a great shade. One. shade, yep. Structure. Exactly. And so that's what all these big impoundments have. And that's where they catch the fish. Mm-hmm. So what we try to do with our Lake Mickey, and I'll explain in just a moment why it's Lake Mickey by the way, I have to get that in there. Oh yeah. <laughs> so but what I did when, when we designed this lake and I had the help of a, a wonderful fisheries biologist named Bob Lusk out of Texas, probably the most well known fisheries biologist in the industry. So I have to give him a lot of credit. Mm-hmm. But the design was is that we wanted every single feature of a large impoundment to be in our lake. We wanted docks. We wanted shade. We wanted underwater humps. We wanted underwater islands. We wanted underwater holes. We wanted creek beds. We wanted ridges. We wanted docks. We wanted boat rips. We wanted all that, and we have it. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was very, very important is we got to keep the angler in mind as well about ease of fishing. We wanted to make sure that when you walked around the perimeter of our pond, that everywhere you walked you would have some structure to throw a, a lure at some depth change to throw a lure at so that effectively you can fish the entire lake in any season hot cold warm it doesn't matter because everywhere we put even in the shallowest part of the lake we have a 10 foot hole right smack in the middle of that four, mm-hmm. four, four foot depth yeah and then in some of the deeper parts we put an underwater island so in the deepest part of the lake It's actually a ridge in the deepest part of the lake, which is somewhere between 13 and 14 feet, depending on the depth we have it. There's a ridge that runs right through that deep part that has a shallow part that's literally literally three feet under the water. So you could literally get spawning in the deepest part of our lake. So when you walk around the lake and fish, you can literally fish any season, and you're going to catch a fish. And second of all, if you put a boat in, which we have a small tracker bass boat, same thing. There's plenty right. of places to sit around and, and fish from a boat. Same thing, plenty of places to catch fish. So that's just from a construction standpoint. The whole other issue, which we can get into in a few minutes if you want to, is the whole stocking plan, but we'll, we'll get to that. Lake there. Mickey. Lake Mickey. <coughs> uh, everything about this farm is named after our, our, our dogs. We're mm-hmm. dog lovers, and we, we now are on our fifth German Shepherd. The whole farm is named after a wonderful dog. Named, his name was Hogan. And we named him after Hogan's Heroes. If you remember, oh, yeah. at the I beginning of that. Hogan's Heroes, they had the German Shepherds. Well, he was a black German Shepherd, but still, he, that was the first thing that came to our mind. So we named him Hogan. He lived for 11 years, was a phenomenal dog. So we had a campfire one evening up behind the house, and a fin- friend of mine took a picture of the fire. And that next morning when we were looking at it, in the, f- in the, the smoke was this wonderful, distinct picture of a German Shepherd's head. Todd showed it to me this morning,
1: it's creepy. Yeah, it's like, not doctored. You, you think, like, oh, God, this, what's this guy on? Yeah. But seriously, like, it looks like a dog in the smoke. It's wild.
0: Huh. And there really was no wild. fog or anything. And so my wife and I knew that was a sign, and we named it the Hogan. Well, we had another dog, uh, unfortunately, get killed by a car last year. It was a, He was an 11-month-old German Shepherd, and he was Mickey. Okay. So we named the lake Lake Mickey.
2: Lake Mickey. Mm-hmm. When I think of Mickey... Uh, my wife's name is Nikki, and I had a, a nephew. Uh, I have a nephew that, when he was a, a little, uh, little bitty kid, he just started talking. He called my wife, tried to call her Mickey, uh, and so he'd always say, "Where, are Mickey, Nikki. So, so your yeah. new nickname for her is Mouse. That's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I try to keep a. Uh, a try I, to keep her happy. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> that's keep right. Keep so, <clears throat> creating the
0: pond. How how long did it take to create? Sure, we started the construction. I believe it was in June, yeah, and we finished construction right around the end of November, or excuse me October, Yep. and we were fortunate, unlike this year, which we had sixty nine inches of rain, which yep. is way above normal, in two thousand and sixteen. We had the opposite. We basically had a drought for three months, which was f- terrible for every other thing other <laughs> than building a pond <laughs> yeah it, it was, was timed great for building well a for you time perfect, yeah, yeah, and we were worried because it was so dry, we were worried about it filling up mm-hmm. and even into December, we only had a few feet of water in the pond, and we were really worried. And I actually dug a well, thinking I'm going to have to use this well, but it finally filled up over the winter, and we've never had a problem since.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. So, stocking.
0: Stocking. That, that's For that's well, me,
2: this is one thing that I, th- I think a lot of people probably mess up. Mm-hmm. seems like I've dealt with a lot of people or seen a lot yes. of farms where yes. people have
0: messed up. Absolutely, it, it is. It's, it's
1: J- just like uh, developing a design plan. You yes. had to have a, a plan for a rich, you know where you start at from a stocking yes, rate, absolutely, and then what you're going to do the management of those fish absolutely. in this system for years down the road. So right. I guess uh, what's your what was your goal for sure. this with for this farm, and then get sure. into that stocking rate.
0: That's a great question, and and you're absolutely right. And there's conventional stocking and there's unconventional stocking. and I'll talk very briefly mm-hmm. both, but here was the goal. Our goal for this lake was to we really had two main goals. And they tend to counteract each other because, remember, a pond is a closed system. Yep. It's not like wild deer and turkey that can just go everywhere. It's a closed system. And if you think about a closed system, it doesn't take long for a bass pond or any pond to get overcrowded. Right. And when it gets overcrowded, you have too many mouths trying to eat the food, and they all get skinny.
2: Like a deer population. Exactly. Just
0: like Carrying de- capacity. It just, it's all about carrying capacity. And because it's a closed system, it happens very, very quickly. Sure. We've all seen it. We've all been to these ponds that you can throw a lure in and catch a bass, All just lots of them, but they're all skinny. Mm-hmm. And they typically stun out about 12 to 14 inches. So you catch all kinds of 12 to 14-inch bass that are skinny, and they're just completely overcrowded. That's normal. And we wanted to make sure, number one, we avoided that. But here's the problem. We wanted high catch rates. Right. Because we wanted all along to be able to go and catch fish. It's no fun to take a new fisher person and go out there And fish for three hours and catch one fish. That's no fun. Yeah. But if you can go out and catch 20 or 30 fish an hour, then you may run into a population problem. So it's a a very... It's a a balance. It's a balance. Yeah. So now that goes into the management of... We'll get to that in a second. But it also goes into the stocking because you have to stock based on those goals. So our two main goals were high catch rates, but we also truly want to try to grow the state record bass. Mm -hmm. Now, we may never catch that bass because... The older they get, they're like trying to kill a seven-and-a-half-year-old wise deer. It, yeah. they're, they're hard to kill. Well, bass are the same way. The older bass are just, the reason they got big is because they're really good in their environment. The Ohio State record is 13.13 pounds. I don't know why it's .13 and why it's not ounces, but that's what it is. And we truly believe that, that we have everything needed to do that. So big fish and lots of fish. So let's go back to the stocking. We had to stock with that in mind. So, number one, if we were going to carry basically a high carrying capacity, which Mm -hmm. is what we're doing. Our design is to carry a high carrying capacity. We had to have a couple things. We had to have a lot of structure in place to protect the small fish, which we do. There's structure everywhere. Number two, we we needed to have plenty of forage. Because we're going to carry more fish than a normal lake is able to carry. Which we'll get into feeding in a moment as well. Mm -hmm. But... We had to stock it in such a way there's plenty of forage fish. So we way overstocked the bluegill population. We, st- we stocked uh, about 21,000 bluegills mm. in, in two different stockings. How which big is were long. they when yeah. you stocked them? Uh, bluegills you typically stock, uh, <laughs> ours, were, we, we, ours was different. <clears throat> let, me, let me talk conventional first. Conventional wisdom says you stock minnows and bluegills the first year. And you stock basically juveniles, and then you let them grow a year and get bigger, and then the next year they're big enough, and then you stock fingerling bass, because the fingerlings can't eat the bluegill. So you really give your bluegill a year to get bigger and start Mm -hmm. spawning, and then you stock the, the, the fingerling bluegills, and they can't really eat the, excuse me, the fingerling bass. They cannot eat the bluegills until the next year. So you really give your bluegills a couple years. That's the conventional wisdom, okay? Well, I didn't want to wait three years to start catching fish. I've been waiting 17 years. I'm not waiting three <laughs> more. <months. laughs> so, so, so Bob Blusk, he, he put together, uh, together a phenomenal management plan, but he told me when he put it together that, you now you have to understand because we're stocking this like a, an existing mature lake, mm-hmm. you, you're going to have to do some things, for example, feed and, and watch your forage. So here's what we did. 21,000 bluegills of which most of those were adults okay it's a little more expensive but we stocked adult bluegills so Uh, an
2: adult bluegills four or five inches what's the qualification to make an adult what size that's
0: that's probably you know they're you know think of your hand yeah that's a if you open up your hand that's a big bluegill right yeah so about half that probably or, or most of them and we stocked those but the same day we stocked 200 northern bass adults mm-hmm. okay now again this could be 73 podcasts <laughs> but i'm trying to squeeze <laughs> this down Northern there's two distinct uh, subspecies of largemouth bass in this country there's florida the what's called the florida strain and then there's the northern strain pretty much above the mason dixon line florida bass will not live they they don't they can't handle temperatures below about 45 degrees and that's stressing it well we have ice on our pond right now so yeah. we get temperatures in the in the high 30s and low 40s so they just can't survive northern bass however they can survive up north but they don't get as big now northern bass a big northern is about eight pounds that's a big one but but again we have some state records that like in ohio that's 13 which we kind of believe that it was probably had some florida genes somewhere in it but generally speaking, 8 to 10 pounds is a huge northern. Well, Floridas are the ones that people are catching for world records. The right. Florida strains are twenty over 20 pounds at times. Goodness. Yeah. It's nothing to catch a 13, 14-pound bass in Texas or Florida. Right. they their Florida strain. So we had originally stocked 200 northerns, all adult, all feed trained. And that's a key, feed trained. They will come to fish food. A normal bass grown up in the wild will not come to fish food. It's very rare. They won't, They won't do it. You have to get them that way from the hatchery. Mm-hmm. So those fish were between one and two pounds. The biggest was two pounds. The smallest was one pound. The average was about one and a half. So those were several-year-old fish that were considered adults, and mm-hmm. they could spawn and so forth, and we could catch them. In fact, I caught my first fish three days after we stocked <laughs> <laughs> So that was our initial stocking for two reasons. We wanted to be able to catch fish, but number two, we wanted an insurance policy as if the next fish I'm talking about didn't do well. We bought I believe it was four thousand F one tiger bass. It's actually a trademark mm-hmm. from American sport fish from Alabama. Now F one tiger bass is a cross between a very large Florida and a very aggressive Northern. They actually genetically, you know, f- through selective breeding yeah. over the last two decades have put this thing together. Put this thing together and that's why they're trademarked. And they, they're they're called a hybrid. They're called F ones because they're the first hybrid from the Northerns and the Floridas. And then after that, they're called FXs, but that's another story. But they grow bigger than Northerns, but they're more aggressive than Floridas. And they live up here. So they're going to grow bigger than the Northerns. So we stocked 4,000 of those, of which 2,000 were fingerlings, which we know a lot of those were going to get eaten the first year by the other bass. And then we stocked another 2,000 that were between a half a pound and a pound, okay? So that was our stocking. And that was in May of 16, or excuse me, May of 17. So as an antidote on the side, the largest bass we stocked was a two-pound northern. Okay, there was only one of those. Mm -hmm. And the northerns don't grow as fast and as big as the F1s. I caught a a five-and-a-quarter-pound bass in October of this year. That bass could not have been more than two pounds a year and a half before that because we didn't stock one bigger than a two pound. Yep. And that fish was probably not that one two pounder. It was likely a one and three quarter pounder because that just would have been too much luck. That fish had to grow between one and a half to two pounds up to five pounds in literally one and a half years. Mm. Yeah, that's our feeding program, which we can talk about So whenever you want. Y-
1: that, that's a sample or, or an example of the health of mm-hmm. this Body of water, yes. From from a stocking um, rate, and then to what what the pond is doing. Yes. I mean, yes. when do you, or how many years do you think it could take to get to that ten pound plus range? I, 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 sure. If you if you continue with the management sure. and everything,
0: sure. There's two things that 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 are causing this rapid growth. Number one is the genetics. Mm-hmm. Okay, but that fish we caught was a northern. Because there's no way, it's biologically probably impossible, maybe not, maybe Bob Lasham will tell me I'm crazy, but our F1s we stocked from Alabama, the biggest one was about a pound. That fish is not going to be over five pounds in one growing season or one and a half growing season. So that had to have been a northern. So that wasn't our fastest growing fish. So something Mm -hmm. is causing that to happen, and here's why. Two two reasons. We have lots of bluegill because the primary feed over time for the forage for a largemouth bass is bluegill in this lake. They love to eat bluegill. Number two is we aggressively feed. Mm-hmm. And we feed aquamouse, aquamax, Purina aquamax largemouth sport fish. And, and really, there's two types. There's what most people feed, which are little small pellets, and that'll feed all fish. That'll feed the bluegills, that'll feed the bass, that'll feed everything. And then they have what's called largemouth pellets that are about the size of a small golf ball, a little bit smaller than a golf ball. Well, only the largemouth bass can eat those. Mm-hmm. So we know when we feed that, only it's only going to the bass. Now, here's a little biology for you. A bass, or any game fish, but let's, we're talking bass here, a largemouth bass to gain one pound has to eat 10 pounds of bait fish. Right. And that, that is to gain a pound. Uh, not even getting into what it takes to maintain. You yep. know, it takes several pounds just to maintain, but, but we're talking about just to grow. Because most of the fish is water. You're not really getting the nutrients. So just conv- remember, 10 to 1. 10 pounds of bait fish will put 1 pound on a bass. The conversion ratio for the feed we're feeding is 1.8. Yeah. So let's just say 2 to 1. So for every pound we feed fish food, it puts a half a pound on a bass. True weight. We fed 2,000 pounds of largemouth last year. Lar- just largemouth feed, which doesn't get eaten by anyone but the largemouth bass. So we know. We added a 1,000 pounds of weight to our fishery in just bass last year. That doesn't count what they're eating in bluegills mm-hmm. and crawfish and worms and all the other stuff in the pond. And that doesn't count. They also will still feed on the small pellets we feed the bluegill. Yeah. So they're getting more than that. So we know that last year we probably added several thousand pounds of weight to our <coughs> bass, over and above what they would have done on their own. That's why we had we caught that five pounds. So to answer yeah. your question, ten pounds. We truly believe there will be eight pounders in here this year. Truly believe. That's 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 probably a no-brainer. Now well, we catch them. I don't know. Next year we'll have ten pounders.
1: That's incredible.
0: There's hope, Matt, that you
2: might catch a bass over five pounds.
1: There is hope. <laughs>
2: You're going to need a I, bigger... I need a bobber. You're you need, need a need bigger a, boat. I, need, I, need, yeah. well, I, <laughs> I was going to say you might want to update your an pole because it, it's going to be a struggle on the Snoopy pole. <laughs>
1: I got Snoopy doo pole,
2: actually. Oh, gotcha. You know what I'm going to get mad? mystery machine.
0: You know one yeah. of those rocket Oh, yeah, that yeah. shoots it the button, out there? shoots cool. it out.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whole fish price.
0: Yeah. So...
2: What is the what? What do you think about uh, looking at your property? What's mm-hmm. been or looking at your pond? What is the one structure that you were – if you were to go down there fishing? What's the structure you want to fish? I know that depending sure. on the time of the year, sure. but yeah, based on your favorite lure, because I'm going to ask sure. you your favorite lure to fish sure. with. Sure,
0: absolutely. If if I have a new angler that just needs to catch fish, yeah, we go to our dock because okay. what we did with the dock is we created structure underneath the dock we Uh created within casting distance a ridge that goes anywhere depths of five feet to seven feet and we have a lot of habitat on top and off the sides but then we have deep water on both sides it's hard to visualize as we're talking but just think of a spine so right in front of the dock there's deep water in front of the dock there's deep water then there's a spine this ridge and then on the other side there's deep water and then on top of that ridge and off to each side, we have lots of structure. We have several trees laying off the side. We have a PVC habitat on top. We have rock piles and everything all within the casting distance of the dock. And so I can take a new angler that's never fished before, and I can take them on that dock in in the spring months or the fall months, and they can literally catch a bass on their first cast.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, for me, because I enjoy the challenge of fishing, yep. I usually don't fish there yeah. because it's too easy. I'm I mean, being just being honest. You can, I can literally stand on that dock. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Uh, it is. It's like shooting <laughs> fish in a barrel. In fact, we had a little friendly bass tournament back in, I believe it was October. And it was myself and four buddies from high school, and then we had my niece's husband. He came out. He doesn't fish that much. Well, the four of us have, have fished a lot, so we were walking around, you know, talking smack to each other and whatever, he stood on that dock and caught, in one hour, 35 bass.
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh.
0: So, there you go. Yeah. But that's Unreal. not my favorite. So, like, if right. if
2: you were going fishing here or anywhere in like lake, where, what's your favorite lure to fish with?
0: It's changed, but if, if I only had one lure, it would be a trick worm. Okay. Because you can do so many things with a trick worm. You can yeah. jerk it. You can let it fall. You can r- r- put a weight on it and run it, on it r- across the bottom. So many things you can do with it. Yeah but my favorite lure outside of a worm is a jerkbait. Yeah. And because you can you can do them shallow depths, deep depths b- based on the weights and you can do them with or without rattles so it's all mm-hmm. season and yeah. that's the one I use the most. Yeah. Yeah.
1: If that's I great. was to say time of year. Yeah. Sure. For this lake. Sure. When do you want to be fishing? Absolutely.
0: Fortunately for our lake, because of all we've done for it, you can pretty much fish it all year long, including the winter. We've Mm -hmm. actually caught bass in the middle of winter. Now, Mm -hmm. right now it's ice, so you're not going to catch any fish. But let's talk when you can really, truly catch a lot of fish. Basically, it's no different than any other lake in any part of the country. It's all about water temperature. Mm -hmm. And bass are going to be very active. Even though their optimum is, let's say, 70 to 80, they're going to be active from anywhere from about 55 degrees to about 85 degrees. That's when you're going to be able to catch them. That's water temp. So if you think when that is, that's late March in this part of the country Mm -hmm. through late June. and Then the fishing slows down July and August because we had literally surface temperatures of 92, 93 degrees last year. And they're just not going to, they don't do well on that. And then it slows down in July and August and then starts picking back up in September and it's great until about mid-November. And you can you can go out here and not only catch you, can you catch a big fish, but in an hour you can catch 15, 20, 30 fish. And it's just fine. Now, herein lies the problem. Do you remember when we talked about the closed system and yep. we talked about we wanted high catch rates, which we're getting, mm-hmm. but we wanted big fish. Yep. Those two don't, are two management goals that goals that typically do not coincide, mesh together. Yeah. They don't coincide. It's no different than the deer population. You, in some cases, if you have way too many deer, you're going to have less food, less habitat, which is going to cause all deer to not reach their potential. Mm-hmm. It's the same way with bass. Certainly. Exactly. So we counteract that a little bit by feeding aggressively, but therein lies another problem. It's nutrient load.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Unlike, again the open system a bass lake is a closed system and if you feed too much and you put too much nutrient in the pond you're going to have a lot of waste mm-hmm. and and think about it theoretically you don't want to cause a too much waste because that's too many nutrients and that can cause fish kills. Right. So there's a there's a little bit of a balance so we want to keep our high catch rates but we also want to have big fish so it's, it's a balance now this year we're going to have to start culling aggressively.
1: Uh, explain that a little bit Sure. Um, because we, we've talked about that on the honey the sure. hunting ha sure. podcast you know, the theory of culling and, and again we're making a comparison sure. here now That's between right. closed systems and That's open right. systems and That's open right. systems is what we talk about with with deer herds and everything but now we're in a closed system so culling takes on a different totally um, different not different role but a different meaning yes and a different success What does yes. that mean for a lake like this
0: Sure. when you look at at the whitetail world as you guys know and you've talked about and the studies have shown you cannot you cannot impact a wild, free-ranging herd of deer by trying to cull genetically. It just doesn't. You, and you all can be more scientific about it, but right. that's the basics of it. That is totally the opposite in a lake, mm-hmm. in a closed-system lake. You can affect the genetics, and you absolutely can affect that by culling. Now, we don't call specifically for genetics. The first reason we call is just too many mouths for, for feed.
1: It's, it's just a numbers It's thing.
0: just a numbers game. But what happens in a bass lake is when you, st- when you do your culling, if done correctly, you do the genetically inferior fish. And you think, well, how do you know what they are? It's simple. They're the ones that aren't as big. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not talking about big in total size. I'm talking about big in relative size. Now, let me explain what that is. In the bass world, there's what's called relative weight. Right. Okay. And relative weight is what should a bass be at that length, weight-wise. All right? Like a so body f- mass index for, yes, for humans. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So, for example, a 12-inch 12, pound ba- a 12 inch bass should weigh 0.87 pounds. Uh-huh. If it doesn't, it's underweight for a reason. Either it's genetically not... Inferior. In, it is inferior genetically, or it's just not doing well in its lake. So either way, it's uh-huh. not thriving. So uh-huh. we want to make sure every bass in our lake is thriving. So the first thing we look at when we catch a bass is relative weights. And we track those. So, I've been uh-huh. tracking those for two years. And what relative weight means, a, a relative weight of 100... Is not the average; it's different in the bass world. Well, it's the top seventy-five percentile. Gotcha. So, in other words, if seventy-five percent of your bass are sk- they're skinnier than the relative weight of a hundred,
3: mm-hmm.
0: only the top twenty-five have a hundred or better. We never ever want to get to hundred or below in this lake. Right. If it's a bass we catch below a hundred, regardless of the size, we're going to take it out. Mm-hmm. It's gone. It it can't it can't live in our lake anymore. Yeah. For some reason, it's not doing what it it's not thriving. So we get that out. So that's one less mouth out, and that and we know that that bass is never going to grow to be a trophy because uh-huh. it's not making it, you know, now. Now, here's something else you do with relative weights. What we do, by tracking our relative weights, we can track trends. So, for example, right now, if you look across our age classes, across our links, our average bass is probably about 115, which is pretty good. Relative weight. Relative weight, which is pretty good because, mm-hmm. remember, the top 25% are 100, yep. we're at 115. Mm-hmm. Now, if some of our bass are 130 mm-hmm. and some of ours are 102 and 103, yeah. but the average is probably 115, closer to <laughs> 118 probably. Well, if next year our relative weights show they're now at 105,
3: mm-hmm.
0: what's that telling us? That's telling well, us miles. either we have a forage problem or yep. we have too many mouths. What do you have to do? Mm-hmm. Start taking out bass. And, li-
1: and that, that's thing, literally taking them out. They're oh, out of this system. They're out
0: of the system. And it's done two ways, mm-hmm. either by angling. Yep. So you tell the angler, here's the size bass we want out. Now, sometimes you put in a slot limit, and you say, okay, it looks like if the relative weights are your 5 pounds and up are really good, you don't touch those. If the relative weights are your – it's usually your 10- to 14-inch bass that are causing the trouble. They're the ones that are the crowd. So if you're not getting too scientific, you just take out – whatever age class is doing the worst, or what there are too many of them. But what we're going to do is we're going to do more selective culling, which is take out those bass that are under relative weights of whatever we want. Okay? So one way is angling. The other way is electrofishing.
1: Mm -hmm. You go around and you
0: shock the lake, and it puts a temporary shock. It stuns the fish. You scoop them out.
1: Float to the top. You test them. You
0: test them. You weigh them. You measure them. And you take out the ones that don't meet your qualifications. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And that's how we're going to
0: maintain great size, but still high catch rates. It's that happy balance.
1: Right. Awesome. Awesome. Mm-hmm. So there is a distinct management to this, just like any other system, mm-hmm. any, any other population um, that we talk about on podcasts. Mm-hmm. And, and any type of management, um, land management, water management, whatever it is, if you have you know property, you have to manage it. Mm-hmm. Um, so all in all, what does the next let's say, three years look like for this lake in a management?
0: It's going to be exciting. We're going to have to uh, aggressively start culling this year because my guess is, now we don't know this. That's the thing about this lake, I think, as opposed to most lakes on most farms. We're not going to do anything because we just think. We're going to let the science tell us. Uh So as I start catching fish and start weighing them next year, we'll know very quickly if our fish are worse or better than last year. Mm Not only, and, and Matt and Adam, we didn't talk about this, but, again, I said this could be seventy cats. <laughs> I actually have them tracked by month. So, uh-huh. for example, you don't want to compare a bass that you caught last year in April to a bass you caught in August. So
1: th- you have different growings. That's right, yeah. because
0: they're More stressed time. in August. They're probably going to lose, because they, they slow down in July and August. They're probably not as heavy in August as they are unless they may. hmm but then they gain weight again in the winter, just like deer. Sure. They feed up for the winter. Probably the heaviest they are, other than spawning, mm-hmm. for the females, is probably October. So we want to okay. compare October weights two years ago to October weights today yep. and last year. We don't want to compare July weights it's to n- August. It's not fair. It's not s- fair. From the
1: cycle in which That's right. you know these fish are going through on a yearly That's basis.
0: Right. So every decision we make is going to be based on how did, how's the relative weight doing versus what it was this same time a year ago and two years ago. That's one thing so we're going to do that, and we're going to do that. We also have to we keep the pH mm-hmm. just like our food plots mm-hmm. the pH is extremely important in a lake, and another thing is you have to keep it fertilized properly because you need what's called a plankton bloom mm-hmm. because the little fish, if you think about it, when a fish gets hatched, you know they're they're just less than a pinhead they can't eat other. Fish. Mm-hmm. They survive the first. First, it's they eat food their. Chain. They first eat their own yolk mm-hmm. or whatever. Their, egg, their excuse me, their sac, and then they start eating basically phytoplankton and zooplankton and just that that green algae and so forth. Until they get bigger, then they start eating small invertebrates and insects, and then they start. You know, it's just the it's the food Recruition, web. Yeah. Well, if you have a, a lake that you can see ten feet down and it's clear and it's beautiful, that's a biological desert. Mm-hmm. It's no different than a crop field that it just it's got... fescue. It's and just like a fescue And that's one
2: of the biggest problems with the invasive species like the zebra mussels. Yes. Who are Consuming filter that. feeders yes. who are eating those yes. same things at m- at a much higher rate because the population, they don't have a natural predator. Right.
0: And they're taking away from those baby fish. That's mm-hmm. right. So I, we...
2: I, I want to share a story for mm-hmm. you because I fished a lot growing up and uh, <clears throat> we call it fishing under the lights. Have you ever fished under the lights? Mm-hmm. Um, we we basically dock out, kind of tie up on a on a point of a lake, and at night, sun's down, it's dark. You have a light, you have light on top of the boat, so you can kind of see what you're doing. But you drop the le- you drop the other lights down, so usually like green bars, and you see these little bitty like things kind of coming around the light, and mm-hmm. basically it's the plankton. Yeah. And then it turns into where you start seeing a little bit bigger fish. Yep. Um, but they're still tiny little fish, and they're coming in to eat those. Mm-hmm. And then you start seeing more of the shad move in. And, and you Absolutely. start seeing this glitter effect to where they're starting to be more shad. And then that's when the big fish come in. And Absolutely. So it's it's like basic bringing the whole food chain in.
0: You attract bugs, too. Yep, it bugs Insects, as well. yeah. Yep. In fact, they have a there's a product out. I can't remember what it's called, that's basically a light you set on your dock. And it's got a... Like a fishing line or like a weed yep. eater line yep. on a motor, yeah, and it kills the. That's right. Knocks it bugs. the it, bugs down in the right. water. No. <laughs> Excuse me. You turn the light on. You turn the that whipper <laughs> thing on, and as the bugs collect, it smacks the bugs and knocks <laughs> them in the water, and they're just a feeding frenzy. And yeah. it's it's neat. Yeah. Same work. concept. Yeah. Same yeah. concept. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Matt, you mentioned things to do. We're going to call aggressively. We're going to continue to feed aggressively. Right. But because the lake is going to be now three years old Mm -hmm. really two and a half to three and we're adding a lot of nutrients Mm -hmm. we want to make sure that we don't develop too much muck on the bottom because one of the real problems you've seen these lakes that are old you you go by in the summer they're just covered with this yucky green stuff and they smell yeah that's too much too many nutrients Mm -hmm. that's a lake that needs rehab we don't ever want to get in that situation how do you fix that okay because we're pushing the well if it's too bad you have to drain it and yeah, muck it out restart. or have a have a dredger come and take care of it but we're not going to ever want to get to that and here's how we avoid it now remember we're pushing the envelope with numbers of fish mm-hmm. but still trying to go bigger so we have to uh, fi- uh, aggressively feed because we're balancing a high population with high you know with, with big fish so it's that balancing effect yeah it would be it would be like trying to feed a deer herd to make them bigger but yet that has its own complications. So yep. we're adding these nutrients. So we're going to have to start diffusing this year. Now, what a diffuser is? It's a, basically a bubbler. Mm-hmm. You put on the bottom, and it's based on size of the lake. You put so many in in, in spaces. You have it well designed, and it's this thing that sits on the bottom that has a hose to it, and it just blows bubbles. Yep. And that basically takes the water column and continually moves it, so that because remember how does how does muck or any biology decompose it has to have oxygen yep well there's in the summer there's no oxygen down there it just sits there and when all that muck and you know waste and so forth just sits there decomposing and then and that's probably not even a word (laughs) undecomposing then when you get a a heavy rain that's cool rain hitting this hot water you can sometimes get what's called a lake turnover and all that yuck on the bottom right Gets moved up and immediately starts decomposing. From the oxygen that's up in the surface, kills the fish.
2: And that mm-hmm. decomposing releases gases and yep.
0: toxic. Yeah, toxic. That's what we call. So fish removes kills. the oxygen. That's right. So they basically they 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 starve as oxygen. They they basically suffocate. Mm-hmm. So by diffusing, you keep some organic biology going on near the bottom you also keep the water column moved so that the the cold water underneath is coming to the surface and vice versa and it's keeping the water column much more cleaner you have much less potential for fish kill and and you can a a lake will last way longer and you can also have a higher carrying capacity because you're basically taking that waste away through nature um, now, surface air, some people do surface aeration, like fountains mm-hmm. and things. Those are pretty, but they really don't do any good.
1: Because it's the bottom it's of the bottom that you're worried It's called about.
0: diffusion. That's what <laughs> you, you... Now, you'll see on a lake that has algae and you put a fountain. Yeah, it'll help around a circle around the fountain, but it's really not helping the total water.
2: Complement. It's not helping get that water on the That's bottom right. moved up. That's mm-hmm. right. And you were sharing some stuff about... You know, like older ponds it Mm -hmm. it takes a while for that to happen that's right that's why you may see a big beautiful pond and i i have a couple that i fished as a kid that were these i mean the first 10 years was just man it was amazing Mm -hmm. and then over time as i got older it's like oh yeah i heard that that pond turned over it's like i
1: wonder what how that happens Mm -hmm. it's kind of like a clear cut that doesn't have prescribed fire
2: yeah over time it it eventually gets out it just gets rank yeah. yeah
1: It's out of use,
2: and
0: it happens usually in the summer. And hap- well, in fact, always happens in summer because it takes certain things for it to occur.
2: Mm-hmm. And one of the biggest things is when it's really warm, and yes. you get a cold rain.
0: That's right. Because think about it: when, when you in the middle of the summer, the way uh, have, you all have done this, we talked about this. If you've ever been swimming in a pond or a lake, yeah. Now this doesn't happen in moving water, like or scuba creek, diving, right. Or scuba diving, but if in a closed system. You go down and you start going down so deep, and all of a sudden it gets really cold really fast. Mm-hmm. And it sometimes is scary. It's yeah. like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. That's the thermocline. It's like I'm 30 feet deep. Yeah, it's yeah. thermocline. <laughs> and typically that is half the, half the distance of the total depth of the lake. Mm-hmm. So if yeah. you have a lake that's 20 feet deep, your thermocline on average is going to be about 10 feet. And it you know, varies depending on the lake and the terrain, but that's, that's sort of the average. Well, below that thermocline, it's devoid of oxygen. You can run an oxygen meter, which we have, and I, we do track our oxygen in the pond. But you can have, let's say, so many parts per million at the surface, you get at that thermocline. Once you go below that, it's literally zero. Mm. There's no oxygen down there in the middle of summer. It's devoid of oxygen. That's why that biology isn't occurring, and it can yep. collect muck. So in the middle of the summer, when it's really, really, really hot, you have a really big divergence in temperature between the surface and the bottom yep. in a non-diffused lake. And so what happens is you got, let's say it's 90-degree surface temperature, and down here it's, let's say, 70. I'm just picking numbers. You know. Well, you get this cold thunder. You know, you've seen it where oh this yeah. big thunderstorm comes Rolls through in and the rain, and it, it drops temperature 20 degrees. Well, all that cold water is hitting the surface. Well, remember the way, you know, the way water works. Colder water wants to sink. So now a sudden you've got this water at the surface, that is hot that's cooling down now it's getting cold and starting to sink and it starts turning the lake over and now that's why it always you never say always but it's very rarely it doesn't happen in the middle of summer after a thunderstorm and that's when it occurs Hmm. major fish kills
1: well yeah well it's intriguing i mean that that just goes to show the importance again uh, of goes back to the Begin of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Whatever it is you're doing, it takes mm-hmm. management. Takes management. It takes, management. It yep. takes ongoing you know, oversight, um, techniques, practices, recommendations, whatever to follow through to make sure mm-hmm. a, a system, closed or open, is as healthy as it can be. That's why you know right. it's a responsibility to be a landowner.
0: That's right. It absolutely is. And here's what happens when we were building this lake. Uh, it was it was so funny. I used to tell the excavators, "Think like a fish," because. And they're like, what? They would say, you want me to put that rock pile where? Because when they built ponds, they've never built a pond like this. Right. Not right. one. And all they've ever done is built them in bowls because mm-hmm. they don't want this stuff in their ponds. Because they don't want their cattle tripping on it. Oh, yeah. Or whatever. yeah, yeah. So they thought I was literally crazy. Mm-hmm. And I would say, hey, go put this, uh, this big old rock pile right over there in the middle of the pond. And they would look at me like I was crazy. And I'd look at them and say, think like a fish. They'd say, what do you mean think like a fish? I'd say, if you were a fish... Would you want to swim around devoid of nothing and nothingness, and mm-hmm. or would you want to go snuggle up to that rock pile at the perfect temperature and the perfect depth based on the conditions? Yeah. And it was kind of funny. After about a couple months of this, I would walk over the excavator, and they would say, "Did Todd, did I hear you right? You wanted me to put this log over there? And I said, yeah. And I'd start to look, and they'd say, I know. Don't even tell me. Think like a fish. And it <laughs> was, became a joke. Yeah, yeah. But let me say this about Lake Mickey. One of my stated goals was to be the absolute most fantastic largemouth bass fishery in the entire Midwest. Mm -hmm. And I truly believe in my heart we have that.
3: Mm.
0: We have high catch rates, we're going to have huge fish, and we're going to intensively manage it. it. And I, I always, you know, I've always heard, and I can't remember which football coach or baseball, whoever coined it, but it's called Maximum Effort. And there's a lot of things we cannot control. Oh, yeah. But what we can control is effort. And I can tell you that in a lake like this, there's going to be every effort made to make sure, number one, it's the healthiest. Number two, it's the biggest bass we we can catch and the most we can catch and still stay healthy. And the last thing I'll say on that part of it is back to these F1 tiger bass, we are the only lake ever in the state of Ohio ever to be stocked with those because we're the only person to ever get a permit. Mm-hmm. You have to have a permit to bring outside fish right. out of state into Ohio, like most most states, and they, no one had ever, ever got a permit. So mm. if anyone did it, they did it illegally.
3: Wow.
1: Yeah. So it's it's what not only it? special from a management, from a design, but from, from the stocking aspect of Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. Absolutely. What is that, as
2: far as the state record goes, to qualify mm-hmm. for state sure. record, if you're bringing a fish in from mm-hmm. Alabama? Sure. Um, that has no effect on? No, on it has no effect. Because it's still largemouth bass. Now,
0: okay. now let me say this. It has no effect in the sense that that it still has to be in the lake in in conditions, wild conditions. Now, again, a lake is a closed system. Yeah. But you can't stock it in it. Like, I couldn't go buy a 20-pound bass and stock it in my little bluegill pond and three weeks later catch it to be a you know, state yeah, record. Yeah, you but, have to grow it here yeah, and yeah. raise mm-hmm. it here. Exactly. Okay. So those bass, those F1 tiger bass, you know, it doesn't matter. They're still largemouth bass. They're they're technically largemouth bass. It's just the strain of the, them they are. Right. And so it's perfectly legal, perfectly fine to stock them and grow them up. You just can't stock a big one and catch it and say, I just. Yeah. And Same
2: way you can't yeah. go and buy a pin-raised deer and turn him loose on a wild place. Yes. And, That's yeah. right. You
0: it's yeah. it's yeah. got to be grown out here. The so
2: what are some of the biggest mistakes people will make in, in creating a pond like this? Okay. The overall construction, what what are some of the biggest problems with the construction of a pond? Number
0: one is the dam has to be, that's AAA number one. You have to have a, you have to have a proper core trench. It needs to be done by someone who knows what they're doing. Because basically there's an estimate out there that 90% of the ponds leak. Oh. Every pond's going to leak eventually.
2: Uh, it's a hundred percent of ponds back yeah. home.
0: Yeah, but you have to. Well, let me even go beyond that. You have to pick the right site because because mm-hmm. we talked True. about this the other day. If you have a karst terrain, which is a lot of yeah. limestone, a lot of rock, you're oh. going to have a hard That's time. Yeah. having there's, a lake. There's yeah. cracks, yeah. crevices. Yeah. So caves. you have to have a lot of clay. Yeah. And it has gotcha. to be the right kind of clay. And so your site is extremely important. We actually dug quite a few core tre- or excuse me trench holes mm-hmm. around to make sure we had the proper material to build the pond, which we did. This part of the country is a lot of clay. Mm-hmm. So the dam is the most important, but but, but that's every pond. But the the, f- the first mistake most people make is they build a bowl. Yeah. They just build a bowl. And a bowl is not, you can still grow fish there and you can still catch them, but you're never going to be able to have the goals that we do if you just build a bowl. You're mm-hmm. going to have to put structure and cover and all these things we're talking about. That's the second mistake. The third mistake is they don't manage it and a a lake can quickly get out of balance quickly i'll give you an example back to the story about the excavators one of the guys that was here he has his own pond it's a beautiful beautiful pond they actually do weddings on his Mm -hmm. property and it's gorgeous but he told me says man we can go out and we can catch all kinds of fish but every single one of them are 10 12 inches and they all skinny Remember what we talked about yep. earlier? That yep. is that is the same story you get all across the country. Yep. It doesn't yep. matter whether you're in Florida or you're in Minnesota. If your pond is overcrowded with bass, you're going to have 10 to 12, 14-inch skinny bass. Mm-hmm. So and you're going to have lots of them.
2: So a guy yeah. that's in that situation, since they're everywhere, I can think of multiples back home. Mm-hmm. What do you do to fix that problem? Start
0: taking them out. Just start aggressively
2: catching, catching fish aggressively. and hauling them out.
0: Haul them out. Or use them for fertilizer for your food plots. Yeah. Just yeah. get them out of there. Eat them, do whatever you want to, but get them out. Don't take them and stock somebody else's pond with them because you're yeah. just taking the problem to them. Yeah. Get them out of the system. Ray Scott, I think it was Ray Scott, once said, when you think you've caught enough— and taking them out, some more. Take a, take a bunch more.
2: Kind of like what we talked about With pruning deer. trees today. Yep. Yep. When you think you've pruned enough limbs, <coughs> just keep cutting.
0: It's hard to take out too many. It really is. Mm. Yeah. Now, let's say you're in aggressive calling. And let's say that you're, if you're doing this scientifically, that you're, you're trying to take out, let's say you're 14-inch bass. I'm just picking one as a random example. Let's say you catch a 14-inch bass that's big and fat. Just because your slot limit's 14 inches, you don't take that bass out. If that's a big old fat bass, it's probably a female.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: You want those in there, and if it's thriving as fourteen inches when all the other fourteen inch bass are skinny, you want that bass back in your pond. Gotcha. So you got to be smart about this. You can't just.
1: It, it's, it's like doing TSI. Yeah, in it's a closed, exactly the closed system, like, yeah. if you will. There's only you know so many stems per acre. Mm-hmm. You're selecting mm-hmm. the best form, right. the best shape, the best canopy, the That's healthiest right. tree, leaving it and That's removing right. the rest.
2: It's, ir- it's ironic Isn't that it? pond management is so Isn't similar it? to managing land. Oh all, yeah, all created diversity. By God. So, yeah. Man, yeah.
1: I mean, it's it's. I love it because that that to me, like. You you basically can learn and apply so <coughs> much yeah. of of one aspect. You're extremely knowledgeable in ponds, as we know.
0: Uh, Seventeen years. You know, they say that if you do ten thousand hours of anything, okay. you become an expert. I don't have any degree in biology or anything else, but I can assure you, I have way more than ten thousand hours. Mm-hmm.
3: Of this. That's mm-hmm. like us. Yeah. Yeah. We don't.
2: Yeah. We're not certified wildlife biologists, but I guarantee we have ten thousand hours of. That's right. Of studying landscapes and, well,
0: and I've had improving. several. You're, you're the best that I've ever seen. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah. here's, here's another major mistake people don't think about. It. Yeah. And it's done all the time. You spend all this money, and by the way, we spend a lot of money stocking this pond and building this mm-hmm. pond uh, for la- largemouth bass and bluegill, okay? Somebody brings in a fish. Hey, uh, I got this big catfish I'm going to put in your pond. Don't you ever let anybody bring a fish and put in your pond, ever, of any kind, mm-hmm. never, Another one, don't let boats in your pond. Yeah, because you go. You talked about mussels. Invasive aquatic. Yeah, you go to the river. This person drives their boat in the river. They go to a lake and they get mussels on the bottom. And those things are kind of microscopic. First, they can get in your live wells. Mm. They can get in your motor. They can get in your. And then you bring them in your lake, and now you have got a mussel problem. So never ever let another boat in your.
2: Yeah, uh, I think uh, one of the biggest problems with the zebra mussels is people are. Well, I don't have any on the bottom of my boat. I can't, like, they're not stuck to it, but right. they're microscopic. Right. They say it almost feels like sand mm-hmm. if they're there.
0: And you, if you're going to let another boat in your pond, you better make real sure that you clean that boat live well, the Inside lower now, unit yeah. of the motor, everything, and make sure there's nothing there. And yeah. In fact, you ought to do it yourself. Don't leave mm-hmm. it up to the person coming mm-hmm. in you do it. Yeah. Here's another mistake that people just don't think about, live bait. I don't allow live bait in my pond. Mm. Other than worms. Mm-hmm. Because think about it. You go to the bait store and you get live bait. You don't know if there's chubs. You don't know if there's bluegill, carp. It's whatever they bought. Mm-hmm. yep. And it's, a, it's usually the cheapest. Shiners. It could be anything. Yeah. Well, you start fishing in your pond and those things are wiggling around. One gets off your hook. Yep. Now, what if that's a pregnant female? What if two get off your hook? It just takes oh, a yeah. female and a male and life has a way of mm-hmm. uh, finding a way to live. Oh, it's certainly You knows. just you just basically it's invasive. That's like putting autumn olives, honey locust, uh all these things that Japanese honeysuckle, honeysuckle, you just added that. them to your system. And yep. You'll never be able to control them without draining your lake. So do not allow any live bait whatsoever in your pond if you truly want it to be mm-hmm. a, a trophy pond.
2: I've always heard that crappie is one of the worst things you can add to a lake like this.
0: Like this. I discussed that a lot with Bob what to, what to 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 stock and here's what he told me he says yeah you have more diversity with crappie and perch and some of these other things he says but think of it look at mouth size of fish and that tells Mm -hmm. you everything what does a crappie have it's got that mouth that looks kind of like a uh, it flexes and it looks like a a, a, what am i thinking of Uh, accordion accordion it's got an accordion mouth okay it's got a pretty big mouth for its size well that means it's going to compete with the bass Mm. for forage Mm -hmm. that's it So you're just throwing something in there. that It's like having hogs on a farm that you want to have big turkey and deer. They're eating the same food. They're Mm -hmm. ruining your your habitat. No different. A crappie is a great game fish. In fact, I have crappie in one of my other small ponds. Mm -hmm. I have crappie and perch. But they're not going in my bass lake. Nothing is going in my bass lake, if I can help it,
3: Mm -hmm. that
0: does anything to hurt the potential. Now let me throw another one at you. How do you self-call a bass lake? That's an interesting question, without catching them. You can actually add certain strains of, of like a tiger muskie. Okay. Hmm. And I believe it's a tiger muskie, and if I'm wrong about this, I, I do apologize, Bob would tell me, but I think they're they're not they're not fertile. Okay. And so you can put four or five of those in there and they'll really cull your bass population. And what are they going to eat? They're probably going to eat a lot of those 12, 14 inch bass. So you can put four or five of those in there and that does that's like putting coyotes on your farm to get rid of some of your deer. Yeah. Mm. So you can actually use predators to help call your lake.
1: Someone just went,
0: huh?
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) I'll make sure
3: they get
2: Todd's email after that. I didn't say
0: put coyotes on your farm. (laughs) I'm just saying, you know. They're probably already there. You know, and I'm not, again, you guys are way more expertise on this than I am, but I don't understand people sometimes. We say we have way too many deer. We go out and we shoot 20 doe, or does, however you say it, but yet we kill every coyote on our farm. Mm
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't necessarily. It get doesn't that. make sense. It doesn't make sense yep. to
0: me now. Maybe I'm no. wrong. It's just me.
2: Now, no, I, we're in the same no. boat as you. It doesn't no. make sense because it, it takes a lot of man hours to. Mm-hmm. It manage takes a lot them. of manage, man hours to try to create a void of coyotes that benefits a deer herd. That's right. Going right. and trapping a couple of them doesn't do squat.
0: Why not make your habitat better so the fawns have a fighting chance? That's, That's exactly right. right. Back to the lake example. You don't want to take some tiger muskies. And, if, again, if the species is wrong, Bob will, Bob will just choke on himself. But I think that that's the right one. I'm not going to put that in a pond that doesn't have structure and cover and things because those tiger muskies musky will devastate your bass population if the bass don't have structure and cover. Uh, it's huh. just like old field habitat or, let's say, switchgrass or timber management. You're giving the animal, the prey species, in this case the bass is actually the prey species, yep. You're giving them cover and structure to hide in so they can get away from that tiger muskie. It's the same thing with the bluegills. Yeah. A bass will devastate a bluegill population in a bowl pond that has no structure and cover. You will lose your small forage. They'll devastate it. They'll eat it out of, you, you'll have none left. You have to give those little animals, we call it dense cover, and fluffy cover in the bass world. Mm-hmm. Dense cover is small, tight spaces that a bass can't or a tiger muskie can't. Is that get.
2: where riprap, like big rocks, would come in? The crevices. Explain the, the rocks. difference. Yeah. Yes. Okay.
0: Here, let me give you an example. Think of a tree. And I got sidetracked on tiger muskie. Let's just go back to bass and bluegill because I don't want to complicate this too much. <laughs> Let's say you have a big old sycamore tree that's got big, huge limbs, and there's lots of spaces between the limbs. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You put that in your pond. That is what we call fluffy cover. Bass and bluegill will snuggle up to it, and they will relate to it, just like a deer might relate it to an edge. Kind of
1: weird. Snuggling up and, and, and fluffy. Yeah, <laughs>
0: and s- that's dim- that's fluffy cover, and that's what we call it. It's it's no different than a bass relating to the edge, where we have edge. Mm-hmm. They're edge creatures. Same yeah. way. A bass is not going to sit out in open water when it can go snuggle up to a limb. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah. That but that doesn't offer protection from predators.
2: Well, there you have it. We're not even sure where it finally cut off. Unfortunately, um, somehow the we had some technical difficulties, and so we got we lost our our main man Todd in that conversation. But man, what some what. A, w- how great was that information? You know,
1: Todd is an <clears throat> extremely passionate person that when he when he decides and sets his mind to do something, he does it, and he does it right, and he studies it. Um, obviously, this is a prime example of that. He studied ponds and everything about fisheries for years and years and years. Two- so 20 years. <clears throat> and then has built and is following up and continuing to manage this farm, excuse me, this pond, so intensely, but it's all derived from passion. That's what I love about it.
2: And, like, and I think we had this conversation after recording, but I said something about when it comes to like hiring or looking at somebody and saying who's who who do I want to help me? Mm-hmm. I said I'd rather have the guy that's passionate about something, right, um, rather than the guy who's got the long list of time credentials, the long list of time that he spent in a classroom studying. Now that's great, but at the same they time, both have I, their want place. S- I want somebody who's very passionate about what they do. Cause I know that passion is going to drive them to the late night studies on their own time. And um, Todd's a prime example of that.
1: Todd, uh, no doubt. Um, he's extre- again, extremely knowledgeable about this. We, we could have gone in so many different directions with that podcast. Um, and that's not the, the first time you've heard from Todd. It won't be the last time you've heard from him, especially on this matter too, because ponds and fishing is a whole other type of recreation that, honestly, Land Legacy hasn't um, gotten into yet. And it's something that uh, we're excited to continue talking about and moving forward with. So what a great resource, what a great starting point. Um, There'll be more in this. And I hope that in the discussion, though, uh, you, uh, you are able to hear the parallels between even a closed system, and an open system, and what we talk about on a daily basis. It's super cool to com- compare and analyze. Very, very similar. Very similar.
2: Like, it, And I can't wait to, hopefully, we'll probably use it as the picture for this one, but you can see the structures that he has in that pond. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It's, it's, it's funny
1: because I'm sure if you haven't looked at the picture yet or whatever, you or or as we were getting started with the podcast um, you may have underestimated the, the design of the pond but take a look at the picture and and you'll see for yourself that it's absolutely incredible so um, hope you guys enjoyed it and we able to take something away from the podcast and uh, understand another way that land can be used for sure I,
2: I'm sitting here as we're wrapping this up I got that downloaded that clip as we went through the farm Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at it on my phone now, and it's just yeah. unbelievable the amount of work and transformation that's getting ready to happen on that place. But, oh yeah, oh yeah, um, yeah. I think uh, and and if you guys have questions about ponds or you're Absolutely. interested in Absolutely. in uh, you're building a pond and you or you're draining a pond and you're trying to shoot us an uh, email info dot tv, and we'll get everything lined up to for who knows we can help you. Todd can help you. We're here to help. So no doubt. Anyway, uh hope hopefully uh you guys learn something about ponds and and who and knows, fisheries you, and bass. You're going to see them. us holding some pictures of fish,
1: some lunkers. Come uh May. May, middle of so. May, we'll be back out at Todd's, um work with him on another project. So, um there'll be more. Hang tight. See ya.